the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon. Greetings. Thanks for coming along today. The Tuesday edition, February the 27th of The Ride Home. Kathy's off today. She is uh, struggling through uh, the malady of a bad back, the ouch of that. <clears throat> and um, if you've ever experienced that, you know... <laughs> exactly what that drill's like. Uh, it's kind of a mystery how the pain comes upon us often. And you go through sometimes days, weeks, months, maybe even longer. Maybe it's just, you know, a chronic condition and that pain stays with you. So uh, prayers for Kath as she struggles through this. I, um, I, I, have, a fr- <laughs> I have a friend who uh, I meet with, I, I, I connect with on, on a fairly regular basis. We've known each other Forever. I mean, really, for, for like way, way back uh, into the 1970s, we've known each other. And um, he himself has spent a life in the arts and uh, now retired. And so uh, we go and you know, get together, have a coffee or sit at his place and just talk and reminisce. And, you know, as a couple of old gray heads are wont to do, we go downstream with people we knew and situations. In his instance, he's produced, uh, whether he's directed or acted or starred in, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of theater and film and television. And as a teacher, thousands and thousands, thousands of students who have come into uh, his fold, and he has helped them work through what it is to have a life in the theater. Anyway. Sunday night we were together, and as often, we come upon the subject of despair and disillusionment. I grew up in a, an Irish Catholic family, and my mom used to say, oh, there's a little bit of black Irish in you, which I get. I tend towards that, towards melancholy. And today, the weather-wise, a perfect indicator of that. When I woke up this morning, like you, right, sunny, bright, beautiful, and then a darkness came over us that the streetlights had to turn on. And then, you know, it rained torrentially, cats and dogs, as they say. And now, hours after the fact, it looks like a pretty nice day. And such is the, the life cycle of what it is to live with disillusionment and despair because really it's a disease, and I would say it's a disease in some way, for true believers, for dreamers, for lovers. It hits when life falls apart, our sense of meaning and our purpose, and it fades when the people close to us become incomprehensible or those we love disappear disappear because of lies of, or brokenness or death. Despair afflicts the lonely and the forgotten, those whose prayers echo against a sky of concrete gray. There's no doubt about that. And so to sit with someone that you know and you love, of course, I'm sure you've done this in your life. If you're of a, quote, 
certain age, end quote, those, those conversations. Now, my friend, whom I love like a brother, we are brothers from a different mother. <clears throat> he, like all of us, but especially a non-believer, has trouble forgiving himself. That's a very difficult currency, isn't it? Even for those of us who know the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, it's hard to forgive yourself the things that you have done, right? The relationships you've blown up, marriages, children, longtime friends, all those scars that I think a lot of us carry. Forgiveness, it is there for us, right? We can choose forgiveness in our life, but it comes at a very difficult journey. I am often very good at it, and in a few instances, horrific at it. But the fact of the matter is, with forgiveness, because of Jesus, I do believe in forgiveness, and I'm grateful for that. In the forgiveness of God to man, and from man to man, and from me to anybody else who needs forgiveness. I'm imperfect at it. It's, I wish it was an exact science that I knew the formula. I do know the formula, quite honestly. But, you know, carrying that formula out to its nth degree of perfection, a very difficult journey. But, of course, love is stronger than all those forces. That, that to love is better than to be angry. That it is better to give than to receive, of course. Better to serve than to be served. Better to forget myself than to assert myself. I believe that God's kingdom can come on earth and that everything that is wrong in the life of the nation or of the church or in my life or yours is ultimately conquered by the power of God and his love. And I believe that nothing that is wrong need be permanent. I know that to be true. Nothing that is wrong need be permanent. So I think about my old friend. And our journey together, our despair, all those things. And you start to pick those up, right? I mean, when you pick it up, Isaiah 41, 17, 20 says, sorry, I'm not even going to read that. I'll read this. Micah 7, 18, 19. Who is a God like thee? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Thou will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 18, 19. So on this day... On this day, this Tuesday, this is what I present to you. This is how I start the show, sans cat, because I know if she was with me, <laughs> she'd be rolling her eyes. But that's what it is to be alive, right? To bear the burden of regret and to lean in towards the forgiveness of our Lord and Savior. It's the Tuesday edition of The Ride Home. Stick around. We're going to talk about, oh, oh, how many churches do you know that have imploded, Right. Locally, nationally, internationally. We're going to talk about some such church with Daniel Silliman from CT, from Christianity Today. That's uh, straight ahead. The Tuesday edition of The Ride Home here. We are Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. Your radio is 101.5 Word FM, W-O-R-D.
If you're a Christian, it is not a stretch to think that you know of a congregation that has self-destructed, or there has been turmoil within a church, or a pastor has uh, acted poorly, or there's been infighting and X against X in the pews and all that. It's just what the nature of the, of the church is. Um, even though we call ourselves believers and we try to live to the tenets of what it is to be a good and faithful Christian, life gets in the way, right? Um, so the idea of churches imploding on itself, this is a fairly common occurrence. I can name right now at least three to four local churches who are suffering through these maladies. But there are other congregations that are historically sort of like leader churches that have been around for centuries. And such is the case with Park Street Church in Boston. And Daniel Silliman is with us. Yeah, Daniel Silliman uh, has written a really interesting sort of peelback of Park Street Church. Daniel is the news editor of Christianity Today. He is the author of Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith, also working on a book, uh, interestingly so, on Richard Nixon. But Daniel will talk about that as well before you leave us. But uh, Park Street Church, it's a wild story. But there has been some sort of resolution, hasn't there? There has. Yeah. Hi, John. Thanks for having hey, me. Always a pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, they, uh, they had a meeting on Sunday at, at Park Street in Boston, a congregational meeting, you know, the kind of thing that a lot of churches have every year, approve the budget, pick new elders, that kind of thing. But this one lasted six hours, which uh, maybe gives you a a little bit of a sense of the scale of conflict that they're dealing with up there. That sounds like a lot of angst. I can't imagine. I mean, you've been in meetings, church meetings that go on for a few hours, but six hours, that's a marathon plus. So then, Daniel, talk to us about Park Street. It involves uh, the congregation, of course, and a pastor and the tension between those two. Can Can you window that down for us? Yeah, well, first of all, it would probably help people to know that uh, this is a very historic evangelical church. It goes back 220 years. It was involved in the early days of Christians opposing slavery in America. It's very important. And and one of the former pastors founded Gordon-Conwell, Fuller Seminary, Christianity Today, the National. So very, very important church, which maybe, you know, heightens the the tension inside the church sometimes, and also makes it a little bit of a, a city on the hill for evangelicals generally. I see. So back in, back in 2020, they got a new pastor. Uh, his name was Mark Booker. Um, and, you know, as, as happens, this is not that uncommon, the new pastor started having conflicts with some of the the current staff you know some of the pastors the assistant pastors the city engagement pastor the worship minister you know they don't all see eye to eye and 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 a lot of times that happens and a lot of times it smooths out after a minute and people get adjusted to each other but what happened in this case was the senior pastor and and some other people who supported him in the church started making changes to the way the church made decisions hmm. and that was and that was really the thing that grabbed my attention not just that there's conflicts but that the conflict was putting some strain and really and really putting to the test congregationalism this model of church government that's very democratic small d where where all of the members you know come together and and make decisions yeah. the pastor started doing things like 
uh, he canceled uh, the ministers' meeting where the senior ministers, associate ministers, sort of all made decisions and said, no, we're not going to have that anymore. Okay. We're not going to be, he said this, or an elder said this at one point, we're not going to be about consensus. We're going to be about guidance. And I'm the senior mm-hmm. minister, and I'm going to kind of make decisions, which, you know, is a model that a lot of churches embrace. Yeah. It's not necessarily wrong you know, reasonable, faithful Christians can disagree about this. But it's interesting when one congregation disagrees about it and stuff starts, um, you know, stop, stuff stops working the way it has and the process starts to change, maybe without a full agreement or full consent. Ministers were also uninvited from elders' meetings, then a hiring process was changed so that the church committee no longer spoke into it. The senior minister just kind of made decisions. I see. And then finally, in the in the bylaws, um, this, this ended up being a, a big and, and actually still ongoing conflict. In the bylaws of this church, as with a lot of Congregationalist churches, uh, the congregation is allowed to call a meeting to kind of review anything. If the elders do something and the church disagrees or the pastor you know, goes off on his own, the congregation has this right to call a meeting. And they've done this now four times, and each time the senior pastor and those around him have come up with a a kind of technical, kind of weird explanation for why this time it's actually not allowed. And so that sort of check and balance seems to have uh, broken in this in this conflict as this conflict has escalated. Wow. So it sounds like a, a house of cards, right? It started to tumble, and then the whole roof caved in, um, especially with a newer pastor, newish pastor, who is, you know, right or wrong, looked at as um, exclusionary and uh, sort of controlling everything by himself. And then the congregation feels like, hey, we just brought this uh, new pastor in, and we're on the outs already. Um, it's a, a recipe for disaster. At least some of the congregation, I mean, a lot of people talked about sort of checks and balances, just this question of, like, what are the mechanisms in place to sort of say, no, that's actually not right, and you don't, don't necessarily get to do that all on your own. Hmm. Number of number of people who worked with him uh, got kind of forced out. Number of ministers got forced out um, and described him as authoritarian and demanding a lot of loyalty and always wanting to control information. And then, you know, in at least at least one case, but maybe a couple of cases, when people sort of brought criticisms of the senior pastor, they shortly after were pushed out of their position or sort of forcefully told they needed to, to leave their, their position. Yeah. So from a, a long view, of course, we're not in the congregation or serving as an elder or anyone in the church uh, policy proper. Um, it's easy to see. Okay, there's great dysfunction here, and and not to beat up on pastors because I mean, everybody who's got a pastor knows how difficult of a situation it is to 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 engage with Absolutely. X number of people, right? Whether it's tens or hundreds or in some cases thousands, everyone's bringing a weird perspective or a fresh perspective or a difficult perspective to the pastor and wanting that person to be sort of like the overseer of all things and give me a solution that everybody can agree on. Very difficult thing to do, yeah. It is very difficult. I think, you know, the, the, the question for me is, 
uh, a church can get along when everybody's getting along, you yeah. know, when everybody's happy with everybody else. Really dysfunctional government systems actually turn out to be fine. The question is sort of what what are the tools there for a congregation or for an elder or for a deacon if if something does happen? Sort of what are the what are the safeguards in place? I mean, we know sure. we're all sinful and that and that's why we need checks and balances yep. rather than just give people control. So, so then they, they had a, a regularly scheduled uh, congregational meeting for this, this, this Sunday, and um, the division in the church was really becoming the issue at the meeting. I mean, they were voting for elders, but they ended up with like t- almost a two-party system, like rival hmm. groups of elders, and there were you know proposed amendments to the bylaws and and they were really kind of um, all about, you know, do we like this change in leadership style or do we not like this change in leadership style? Do we support this minister who's fired a bunch of other ministers, you know, who were there to marry us and bury our kids and pray with us when we were crying? And, yeah. or, or, or we think, no, that's his right and that's his, you know, responsibility. I mean, the pastor's perspective, as he explained it to me, was that, like, he was trying to do stuff and there was just a— a resistance, a minority that just would never agree with him, and that's why he needed to then like take more con- control. So the pastor decided um, to put himself on ballot for the annual meeting and put a sort of no confidence vote or a, a vote to affirm his leadership. Excellent. You know, the congregation called him in 2020 to be the minister in 2024. After all of these changes, after these fights, uh, do they they still want him? So that was the sort of central piece in this big, uh, chaotic and, and, and controversial meeting that they had on Sunday. I see. So Sunday night, those interested all got together and essentially put the pastor to a vote of confidence, no confidence. Now, Daniel, uh, as a reporter for CT, uh, were you able to live stream? Were you able to listen in? Uh, where, where were you in this mix? Thankfully, we ha- I have a colleague who's in Boston, so she actually went and sat through the meeting. Uh, she recorded parts of it and, and, you know, speeches and that kind of stuff and shared it with me, and we uh, wrote the piece together. So thankfully, thankfully, we have, uh, you know, we're not all in one location. We're around the country, and, and in this case, we could be on the ground. Right. Great. Okay, so uh, good news. The church trying to work through uh, voluminous problems. Uh, obviously, Jesus in the room with all who uh, know and love him. And so after six hours, uh, the pastor had his say, his detractors had their say. What was that like? Yeah, pretty tense, pretty heavy. Um, ultimately, they, they voted, and two-thirds of the—it was a non-binding vote, so it wasn't like clear exactly how many votes he needed. It was kind of open to interpretation. But two, two-thirds of the congregation voted to affirm him. And, and it was said pretty clearly, this doesn't mean they think he did everything right. They think he needs to grow and change and stuff. But they like the direction he's taking things. They're not too concerned about, you know, the change to the hiring process or to the firings or the, or the petitions. That doesn't seem to, to bother them necessarily. 
they want to see it go in in that direction. But a third of the congregation voted the other direction, so mm-hmm. that's still a that's still a pretty divided space. And and people on both sides told me like we're gonna have to work to heal. We're gonna have to like start listening to each other. We're gonna have to find a way through this if we're gonna find a way through this. Good. All right. Well, maybe that's best case scenario where you see how the church governing body, of course, every denomination, mostly every church, especially non-doms, have their own way of looking at things and trying to get some solution here where there is a rancor. So uh, Park Street Church in uh, Boston, uh, at least on a path towards healing. And that is good news. Yeah. I hope so. I feel like there's still a lot of a lot of questions, a lot of stuff that that maybe hasn't been dealt with. The Congregationalist Church, and they prayed, and they voted, and this is the way the the vote came down. Very so good. now they gotta, you know, bind up the wounds and and maybe find some reconciliation, which uh, is something that we as Christians uh, know a lot about. Yes, we could all use a little forgiveness. Daniel Silliman is with us. He's a news editor at Christianity Today. Hey, Dan, uh, I love your Facebook feed. It's always filled with nuggets of, of news uh, nationally and internationally. But I did see that uh, you're working on a book uh, about Richard Nixon, and you're already out uh, talking and uh, engaging the public. Tell us about that. I am. My book is going to be out in August, which is the... 50th anniversary of Richard Nixon's uh, resignation. And this is a religious biography of Richard Nixon. It's called One Lost Soul, Richard Nixon's Search for Salvation. And I really look at his life and his kind of, um, there's a spiritual longing and a spiritual searching that uh, that really was never satisfied and, and he you know kind of was never persuaded by grace and forgiveness and thought he had to work 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 and was always trying to be enough and and prove himself enough and couldn't just rest in God's love and I think that story actually, explains a lot about Richard Nixon. Not only is it a really interesting story, there's, you know, there's some weird and um, and some unusual stuff about this former president who became a disgraced president, uh, forced to leave the White House. That, that kind of doesn't make sense if you just look at it politically. But if you pay attention to the spiritual story in his life and, and underneath, um, a lot of stuff kind of falls into place. Fascinating. Fifty years after the fact of his resignation, when he uh, boarded yeah. a helicopter and gave the peace sign and flew up off the White House lawn, we're still talking about Richard Nixon. Uh, Dan, uh, it comes out in August. The book title once again? It's called One Lost Soul, Richard Nixon Search for Salvation, and uh, it's available for pre-order now. Fabulous. Always a pleasure, Dan. Thanks so much. Thanks, John. Have a nice day. You as well. Daniel Silliman, he's a news editor at Christianity Today, and uh, well worth a look on social media. Easily found Daniel Silliman, S-I-L-L-I-M-A-N. Remember the heyday of the department store? Massive, gigantic buildings, floor after floor after floor of everything that you could want, need, or dream of. And there was a time, of course, here in the city of Pittsburgh, like most major metropolitan areas, that the department store was king. Downtown, at least in my generation, there were three. Kaufman's, Horns, and Gimbel's. It was the, the holy trinity, in many ways, of retail. 
Um, but then, of course, um, downtown shrunk and um, malls came into being and people left the city for the suburbs and uh, the gigantic department stores suffered uh, because of that. I think, um, was it Gimbel's was the first to close downtown, then quickly followed by Horns, and then Kaufman's limped along for many a year until finally the Kaufman's brand was sold to Macy's, and uh, Macy's held it up for a few more years, probably less than a decade, until Kaufman's downtown closed, although suburban Macy's still are in existence. However, news today that Macy's will close an additional 150 more stores. They are looking to get uh, smaller but a more luxurious look. In many ways, you know, the um, the rise of uh, discount brands like TJ Maxx or the rise of Amazon have really gutted um, the stores. So you go into a Macy's now and you wander around um, – uh, very few employees and um, still kind of looks like it did uh, in its heyday, but not the same by any stretch of the imagination. So um, Macy's, my guess is here locally, Pittsburgh, we'll lose. Uh, where are there Macy's? There's one, I think. Is there one in Ross Park? There's one in Roeville. I'm not sure if there's I, – I know there's two. We're going to lose a Macy's here. And I, to be honest – I haven't been to a Macy's forever. I used to work for Macy's, as a matter of fact, um, many, many years ago <laughs> as a young kid. Uh, in, not a young kid. As a young 20-something in the executive dining room of Macy's New York, which was fascinating. I mean, um, white linen tablecloths and um, every early or every late morning to early afternoon, the executives, of which there probably were... 50 to 60, would show up for a a scrumptious meal prepared by a private chef in the Macy's executive dining room. And um, myself and a small group, maybe like uh, six or seven of us, you were in the kitchen helping and then ultimately for myself, serving as well. And you got to know these guys. You know, it was certainly a men's club at that time. This was like the early 80s. Maybe there was one or two women in the executive dining room. You, you knew the guys. You knew what their preferences were. You know, you'd show them a short menu, and um, it was fine. I, I wonder if the executive dining room is open at Macy's. My guess not in New York City. Anyway, uh, to the pantheon, to the the glow of our American dream of merchandising and all that represents Uh, The fall of Macy's, in many ways, is the fall of all of us as we go online. We'll take a quick break, come back. We're going to talk about what's going to happen on Thursday. Thursday of this week is a leap year, February the 29th, once every four years. uh, From reasons to believe, Jeff Zerwink will join us next. Stick around for Pittsburgh Christian Talk. It's the ride home. This Thursday is a special day. It's leap year once again, February the 29th. Of course, once every four years. I've been thinking about leap year. I kind of like it, although my birthday is not on the 29th, and probably yours isn't either. There's not that many of us who get to celebrate once every four years. But I have been thinking about um, something called the Hanky Henry Permanent Calendar, 
which is um, something I'm sure we'll talk about during this conversation. But Jeff Serwink is back with us. Jeff is an astrophysicist from the ministry Reasons to Believe. He also is uh, from, uh, earned his PhD, Dr. Zerwink, from Iowa State University. His writing, his speaking, encouraging people to consider the connection between Scripture's truth and scientific evidence, that's RTB, author of Escaping the Beginning, Is There Life Out There? and Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? Jeff, welcome back to the show. Hi, John. Really looking forward to our time today. And I actually... I, I am one of those people. I don't have my birthday on leap year, but one of the people in my family does. Really? My mom's birthday is on leap year. Yes, I so love I, it. I've, I've been. It is. It's I, I remember when I finally was older than her, and so do most of my grand or most of her grandkids as well. <laughs> so that's so cool. So let's talk about that. So this is leap year, of course. As I said, Thursday. Uh, for the uninformed, what exactly is the leap year all about? So. The the short answer is every now and again, we just add a year into our calendar. And the whole reason for that is the reason we have years is the earth goes around the sun. Yeah. But we also have seasons because the earth is tipped relative to the sun. And what we want to do is we want to think, okay, when you think about February, at least when I think about February, I'm thinking, okay, that's when the weather's cold. Well, if we... The, it, it just so happens that the time it takes to go around the sun isn't an exact number of days. And so if we don't account for that, the time of year where it gets cold is going to rotate through the year. And so we add a, a day in every now and again to keep that lined up well. I see. So it's a it's a spatial thing, right? It's the creation of the universe and all that's in it and us inhabiting this little blue ball. Uh, we got to catch up because time uh, time is a necessity. It really is. And, you know, often, uh, you know, we, we are less constrained by this today, but keeping track of when was harvest time and when was sowing time and all of that was really important. And that was related to days of the year. And so if, you know, if we had exactly 365 days it takes to go around the sun, then we wouldn't have a problem. It turns out it actually takes 365.2422 days. And so the fact that it's that 0.2422 days means that we need to we can't just keep track of days. We have to add in a couple of days every now and again to make it work out. Well. I see. So then our calendars, our, our feeble efforts to sort of contain time or keep track of time, uh, they don't fit necessarily into the mold of, of the universe and all that's in it. Talk about time and leap year from an eternal perspective as we as believers would think about it. Well, it, it is an interesting thing. I mean, I, I could imagine myself moving somewhere else in the universe. I could actually imagine myself being at a different time in the universe. But it, to me, it, it's just kind of mind-boggling that space and time are both created quantities. They're not fundamental. So when we think about God, we don't think, where is God? Because that's not part of who he is. We don't think about when is God? Because he just is. And so he's created this space and this time that we live in. And we certainly, you know, we, we, I mean, you look at how this universe behaves and it's like, it's just incredible that we can look out and observe stars and figure out what's going on there. But this whole idea that stars grow old and die and things change, that doesn't apply to God because time doesn't apply because he created both space and time. And I find that just remarkable to think about. I love it. I love it so much. So 
the idea then of a leap year, right, we obviously we are not God, but we need to have some sort of order and symmetry in our life. But, you know, the, the calendar that we follow, uh, that tends to change every hundred years or so, doesn't it? I mean, uh, the calendar we're following now has not always been in effect. It hasn't. And in fact, as you look back through throughout time, people have tried to figure out, okay, we want to put a calendar in there. And so let's make it, uh, you know, 29 days. There was actually one uh, ruler, a Roman ruler, who thought that uh, even numbers were bad to have. And so he had every month have 29, except for one that was 28. And that's February. There's all sorts of weird things about the calendar. But we finally have one figured out. Over time, you know, you've got the, the, the Roman calendar, now the Gregorian calendar that we use, where we have 365 days, which is pretty good. Every four years, we need to add in one more day because it's not quite, it's a little bit over 365. But then every 100 years, we, not all of those are leap years. So we've got it kind of figured out where at least for the next 3,000 years, <laughs> we're going to be lined up to within about a day. And that's right. pretty good. That so. is pretty good. Okay, so I'm reading about leap year. I find it fascinating like you do, Jeff. But there's something called the Hanky Henry Permanent Calendar. You know about this? That is not a term I've heard of. I, I Give me a little bit of insight. Okay, here's the deal. That? It's basically two guys, Mr. Hanky, Mr. Henry, came up with this calendar. And they want to make this a permanent calendar that every day of every week of every year would follow the same Monday in 2024 would be the same Monday as 1975. Um, and to do so, it's 364 days every year, not 365. But then that extra day, every four years, instead of having a leap day at the end of <laughs> at the end of December, you would have a leap week, a whole extra week at the end of December. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I, I like the idea of every day. Every day falls on the same day every year. But that extra week, they're putting that in there because, of course, you know, that, that extra week in December is kind of like a holiday for a lot of people anyway. So instead of getting one week, we'll get an extra week. The Hanky Henry calendar. All right. I, I just don't think that's going to fall. I, don't, I have a trouble seeing how that's going to work out. I do too. There, there's part of me where it's like, you know, not not to be irreverent, but it'll be a little bit uh, weird. Yeah. Is that, uh, you know, if, if I were designing this and if I were God, I would have made sure that the day is lined up and there wasn't the extra day in there. And so, yes. <laughs> just because I'm a little bit obsessive compulsive about things lining up well. But, uh, you know, again, I just, the, the idea that we can actually understand and know all this. I mean, you know, if you put it in context, I mean, here, the Earth travels, I think, it, I think it calculated out, it's about just shy of 600 million miles every year. And it gets back to the same place within 15 minutes every year. Wow. I mean, it's traveling 66,000, almost 67,000 miles per hour. And yet every year it's just like that. I mean, it's kind of mind boggling that the universe is that reliable. And in fact, the, even the 15 minutes, we can calculate what that is. It's not like it's just, well, it's close. It's like we, we even know what causes the variations that the uniform, universe is that reliable and regular which is ultimately anchored into God's character. It's uh, just a great reminder of how trustworthy and reliable God is. That's so excellent. We're talking with Jeff Zerwink. He's from Reasons to Believe. He's an astrophysicist, author of Escaping the Beginning, and Is There Life Out There? So, Jeff, uh, let's go back then to your family. Your dear mother, once every four years it was her birthday. Describe what that was like in the house. 
Well, it was just funny because we celebrated her every year. I mean, you know, she's my mom, so we couldn't get by without doing that. But yeah. it was just like, hey, you get an actual birthday this year, not not <laughs> celebrated a day early on February 28th or on waiting a day later till February 29th, but you got an actual birthday. Yeah. Did she choose, though, like, you know, the 28th or March 1st is her real birthday in the other three years? You know, I think what we did, there's been this kind of odd scenario in my family that we always kind of chose wherever it was, wherever it worked well. So, uh, you know, even when we get together as a family, we celebrate Christmas on the day where we can all get together. I see. Not so much the 25th. And so yeah. it kind of depended on who, you know, as, as we got older, who who was around and making sure that we could all be together. But we always made sure to celebrate regardless of whether it was the actual day or not. Your poor mother. <laughs> so she worked really hard and then her birthday was just up for grabs. <laughs> well, she always had one. But, yes, you're right. There was some... Uh, Ambiguity, or, uh, not ambiguity, but uh, a little bit of flexibility on when it had to happen. Yeah, there, yeah. So, so um, <laughs> how old was she? I mean, I mean, this went on for a long time. At her oldest, how old was she? Uh, well, she's uh, she's still growing older, so Excellent. she's not. Uh, yeah, so uh, she actually gets a real birthday this year, so I'm excited about that. So Good. at least tells you within a factor of four what how old she is. But, I love it so much. Um, so, so no, she's still plugging away, and there's still she still has a couple of grandkids that are not quite as old as she is yet. So, uh, but uh, that should happen in the not too distant future here. Very good. So, Jeff, uh, on this leap day and your mother's birthday, obviously you'll celebrate her birthday. Um, any other equal celebrations around that? Because uh, it it just uh, for anybody who's so a lot of people kind of go, I shrug my shoulders. What's the big deal? It's not that. Be, who cares? But for a lot of us, it's kind of quirky and kind of fun. Yeah. It really is. And, you know, I, uh, a while back, uh, you know, I wrote an article about this and I was just kind of thinking about, you know, from a from a physics perspective, what about this do I find interesting? And I think, you know, one of the things I find interesting is just how reliable and regular and orderly this is. But I also am just, you know, when I think about, OK, here's the Earth that's going around the sun. And I, I was kind of thinking, OK, so there's often times where I can put numbers to things, but I don't truly grasp how immense that is. Mm. That if I think about the difference between me and a mountain, how many me's or how much I would have to be to be the size of a mountain, that's the difference between a mountain and the size of the earth. And if I think what it would take for me to move a mountain, it's just almost unfathomable how that is. And yet, I I can understand how the Earth orbits around the sun and how to find the mass of the sun and the mass of the Earth from the things that orbit it. I can do all those calculations, but there is a creator who makes all that happen and doesn't ever get tired. It's just effortless for him to do. And it's just like God is so much bigger than I imagine when I sit down and think about what does that actually mean for the Earth to orbit around the sun. I love it. There, there certainly is a lot to ponder. Our hope is that when we get to heaven, we understand it all. <laughs> or at least, you know, I'll, I almost kind of wonder if that's, there's the God has created, his creation is so fascinating and in-depth that we may study it forever and still not understand mm, it. That's good. But, uh yeah, I, I, can't, I almost couldn't imagine getting to the place where it's like where we got everything figured out. Yeah, I could almost that almost might be boring. I almost think that God set things up to where we will never exhaust what yep. there is to know. That's good, even after eternity in heaven. There's a lot to be said about knowledge and the mystery of it all too. <laughs> Jeff, Absolutely. Thanks so much. Always, always interesting. Really appreciate you coming here with us today. 
Thanks. Thanks, John. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Dr. Jeff Zerwink. He is from Reasons to Believe. We love this organization. Astrophysicist Dr. Zerwink. Look online for more about Reasons to Believe at reasons.org. Longtime Pittsburghers, there is a certain nostalgia, of course, for the good old days. And a lot of that, you know, in our DNA, it's baked into us. The, of course, the media will be happy to tell us this again and again and again that this used to be a great steel town. And of course, there there is a lot of truth to that. It was a great steel town, but with that came a lot of pollution. And with all that pollution came a lot of health problems. I remember growing up as a kid in Swissvale, and you would see the neighbors who they didn't wash their car because their cars would turn orange. I remember my mother running out in the backyard um, as the mills uh, a couple of times a day would release this orange cloud of, or, of, of dust, steel dust, that would float across in the Mon Valley and into our backyard. And, of course, all the women did this. They ran outside. They had laundry on the line. They'd pull it down because these fine silk particles, these silk particles would come raining down sometimes extremely visible. They would change the the color of the sky, a bright orange. Well, this has been going on for decades, uh, but uh, you may have missed this, and I was happy to see this, although I'll hold my breath to see if it's enforced. But at the end of January, United States Steel agreed to settle a lawsuit that accused the Pittsburgh-based company of violating federal clean air laws by operating plants without its desulfurization controls for more than three months. Now, you know what that is. That's just the rotten egg smell. And, of course, again, if you grew up in Pittsburgh, you know this, right? You smell that rotten egg smell and go, that's the mills. Now, rightly, we should be proud of our steel heritage because, like you and me, it provided good-paying jobs, union jobs, for members of our family, right? The Mon Valley up and down, it flourished in its heyday. Post-World War II, up until the 1970s, that was the backbone of a strong, middle-class life. But at the same time, U.S. Steel, with their air pollution controls, would shrug their shoulders, I remember um, Michelle Madoff. Remember that name? She was a city councilwoman. But back in the late 60s, early 70s, she founded or co-founded a group called GASP, Group Against Smog and Pollution. And as a kid, I remember, oh, hey, they're funny. They're going to do something here about this. You know what? As proud as you are of being from this area, a lot of us are, U.S. Steel is a brutal polluter. And they... They just do so without impunity. They're fined, they pay the fine, shrug it off, and then do it again and again and again and again. This has gone on for decades, like I said. So this latest settlement somewhere in the neighborhood, because the U.S. Steel says, well, we've already spent $17 million in fine-related costs to improve the air quality in the Mon Valley. So what we're being fined now, somewhere to the tune of $47 million, well, that should solve the problem. Until it doesn't. So let's see what happens again. Because you want U.S. Steel to be here, although, of course, it doesn't look like they're going to be here long. You need these jobs. You want that. That's our DNA, as I've said. But at what cost? So whether U.S. Steel gets sold to a Japanese company or a Chinese company, will they still continue to be bad neighbors and pollute our lungs? Remains to be seen. But the record is not that good.
Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Don't you love when you hear stories about people who are incredibly generous? We live in this age. I mean, there are some people among us with huge wealth. And those few individuals who take that huge wealth and make it prosper to help so many well-deserving people. Such is the case with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. It announced yesterday that it received a $1 billion uh, donation. $1 billion donation from a 93-year-old former professor. Her name is Dr. Ruth Gutzman. The gift which will provide free education in perpetuity perpetuity for all 737 medical students at the med school is believed to be the largest to any medical school in U.S. history. Annual tuition at Einstein is about $60,000 a year, which, to be honest, feels pretty cheap, with almost half the students owning more than $200,000 plus upon graduation. That's a hefty sum. The school is in the Bronx in New York City. It's one of the poorest boroughs in the city. Also, uh, one of the most diverse. Spring 2024 semester of tuition for current fourth-year students will be reimbursed and free tuition. Henceforth, will be provided to all students starting in August. Grotzman and her late husband, David Grotzman, an early investor in Berkshire Hathaway, say no more, and founder of an investment firm, First Manhattan, have made multiple charitable contributions, donating, donating an estimated $330 million. One condition of the Einstein donation is that the medical school retain its name, Albert Einstein, agreed to his name being used on that med school in 1953. So a billion-dollar donation and free medical training to become a doctor forever at Albert Einstein School of Medicine. Uh, along with that generosity, I've been thinking about the Tooth Fairy. Now, the Tooth Fairy has been a big thing in our family growing up. Lex, chime in here. Uh, I think I talked to Kath about this. <laughs> and Kath's family, they were a little more astute. They did not believe in the Tooth Fairy. Oh, I grew up with the Tooth Fairy. Me too. I did. Now, the horror of first as a kid wiggling the tooth and knowing, oh, here it comes. Was there anything worse than a dangling tooth? It was so annoying. And oh. you just play with it the whole time in, oh. in class. The dread. Because mm-hmm. you knew there was going to be some pain coming your way, right? Oh, yeah. Unless it fell out in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. which was like, <laughs> oh, you woke up and you, oh, I got a hole there. And then you had to go find the tooth. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, uh, why it matters is that um, uh, the tooth fairy payouts have dropped for the first time in five years. Mm-hmm. What? What did you get? Uh, usually nothing more than like a dollar. Yeah, a like, buck. Yeah, I mean, I'd get like a, I get a dollar for like the molars, but like any like, any like normal, regular, boring teeth would get like, I don't know, maybe a quarter, 50 cents or okay. something like that. Good. Now, now, as a kid growing up, I mean, you know, literally I get like a dime maybe. I mean, you got to figure tooth fairy inflation, right? Our kids <laughs> yeah. got a buck as well, maybe somewhere around that. Um, here's a tooth fairy quickly by the numbers. Uh, here in in our area, the Northeast... Uh, some people, some people have given their kids upwards of six dollars or more per tooth. Seriously, that's an insane amount of money to give yeah. your child for a tooth. Average value of a first tooth is down uh, seven dollars and nine cents. I mean, seriously, most kids. I, Could you imagine giving your child like ten bucks, bucks for a? <laughs> 
for a tooth. Just put your debit card underneath the pillow, right? <laughs> I'll send you a Venmo payment. Now, a, a lot of families don't do the tooth fairy, do they? I, I don't know, because I, I grew up with the tooth fairy. I grew so. up with it, but I, you know, Cass not here to sort of chime in here. But mm-hmm. this was a thing. She, she would tut-tut the tooth fairy. That's such an odd thing. Mm-hmm. I loved the Tooth Fairy growing up. Well, I mean, not that I loved money, but I did like putting stuff in my piggy bank. So there's that. And those poor people. I mean, I always think about, you know, like my gram, <laughs> she had dentures. And I thought, the Tooth Fairy, man, I broke the bank on Graham's dentures, <laughs> the, right? The Tooth Fairy got. Yeah. <laughs> had to take out a small loan he for that sure one. sure did. Anyway, w- whether it's the people, you know, the, the Gutman family, um, uh, who gave a billion dollars to the Albert Einstein School of Medicine, or us, you and me, you got a little kid. Isn't it good to be generous, right? To acquire the giving habit. I know this is difficult for a lot of us, right? To give intelligently and freely, liberally, to give money and books and counsel and sympathy and inspiration. When, when it hurts, it should hurt to give, right? But then it feels so good that all of us are called in many ways to give something every day, to cultivate what? The giving habit as we do the saving habit, right? They go hand in hand, right? Not with the expectation of giving as a a return that, you know, I'm going to do this so I get something back, but to give freely. Because I do know this is true, that there really is. You know how good you feel that there is no greater joy in life than to render happiness to others by means of giving without expectation of giving anything back. Never in the world, never before in the world, has the world been so generous. You see that. I mean, billionaires giving away money, as they should, right? There's no doubt about that. But they have it. What about the widow, the widow's might, right? I mean, there she was, the cheerful giver. It is the spirit of the supreme giver, Jesus Christ, who gave his life that men might know the way to the Father. We owe it to our highest self to give every day as we are able. A billion dollars to a med school, a buck for your kid's loose tooth underneath the pillow at night. It's all the same pot. All of us live in a streaming paradise, right? We sit down press a couple of buttons, and then before us are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of entertainment that we can settle into until our eyes glaze over or we fall into a deep sleep. But in the midst of all that streaming, you know, the, the days of the movie ratings, remember G for general audiences, R or M for mature audiences, a PG, parental guidance, all those were kind of like regulators, as imperfect as they were, as to whether or not you could or should engage with the content that was inherent in the video or the TV show that was coming your way. But seriously, today with all that and streaming and language, it is off the charts. You know that as well as I do. Just about anything we watch today, even things for kids, have cuss words in it. So how do you look at your tongue? And if you're so inclined to tame your tongue, Pastor Jay Slocum is with us. Jay is the rector at St. Thomas Anglican Church in Gibsonia, PA. And Jay's here to talk to us about the third commandment. Hey, Jay. Hi, John. It's great to be with you today. Always good, Jay. Okay, the third commandment. Yes, the third commandment. Yes, which is? Thou shalt not 
Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain, literally translated. Mm. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. Now, maybe not. Mm. Here we go. <laughs> so here we go. So growing up, uh, when I became a Christian, I learned this commandment, and I thought, oh, it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, don't swear. Especially, don't ever Mm-mm. say God's name in a way that is in vain. Well, what does that mean, in vain? Well, empty or without gravity or weight. So I thought, well, that's easy. That's the easiest commandment because mm-hmm. that's all you have to do is say, I'm not going to say swear. I'm not going to say God's swear words. Yep. And so if you don't use the cuss word, the God cuss words, you're good. That commandment's, that's because all the rest of them, man, they are hard. That's rough. Heck yeah. Why? Don't covet. Don't lust. Don't be angry to the point that you want to kill. Yeah. Uh, Make sure God's the most important. Honor your mother and father. Make sure you rest. Uh, Yeah. And don't love things in a disordered way. So number three. Yeah. Number three. What the heck? So yeah. Why is it such a big deal? I mean, I I get it. You get it. So we're good to go. So what if we translated it wrong? Oh, what do you mean? So the word, thou shall not take the Lord's name in vain, is the Hebrew word, Nassau. Sounds like Nassau, Mm -hmm. you know, like rockets going up. And it's a good way to remember the Hebrew word for take, because Nassau in Hebrew means to lift up and bear, to take away, to hold on to, and regard. Now think of it. Do not, the, the, what the, the commandment's not, it's not a throwaway commandment. It is massive, and it is, uh, do not carry God's name around in the way in which you act and behave. Didn't say do not speak the Lord's name. Just do not carry it around, do not take it. Do not carry God's name around in a way that, say it again, go back to that whole thought. Do not carry God's word around. Do not carry God's name around in vain. Now, let's just say you are, uh, you, 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 you carry the Pittsburgh Steelers jersey. You're one of the Steelers. Yeah. And you have a bar fight. How does that look for Pittsburgh? Yeah. Bad on all of us. It's bad on all of us because... You represent the name of the Steelers, which represents Pittsburgh, which represents us. Right. So we get that. Yeah. Don't go to the Super Bowl weekend and get into a bar fight, and everybody goes, "Yeah, those Steeler fans." Yeah. Right. Because that you you're put you're you're besmirching the name of the Steelers. If you're a fan and you carry the jersey, if you're sponsored by Nike and you're doping, yep. they're going to drop you. Mm-hmm. We understand the idea of carrying a name around. When I grew up, my parents would say, you know, when I would leave for a party, remember who you are. <laughs> I grew up in a little town, and, and the, na- the name, my family's name, I was expected to honor my family's name, not to drag it through the mud. Right. Okay, so this is a form of branding in a way, right? I mean, this, whether it's family branding or sports team branding or, you know, Christian branding, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you belong to. You carry the brand of God. You're made in his image. Don't be walking around making God look bad in the way in which you work, rest, play, 
Party Act? Yeah. Whoa, wait a minute. That's no throwaway commandment. <laughs> right. Yeah. John. No. And here's the thing. When you read Exodus, God comes to Moses in chapter 3, and Moses says, look, I don't want to do this, God. I don't want to carry your name. And then he's like, I'm going to give you Aaron. And he said, I don't want to do it. And he says, uh, and then Aaron, uh, Moses tries to get out of him. He goes, hey, God, if the people, if I tell the people that you sent me and I tell Pharaoh you sent me and they don't believe me, listen to this. He goes, what name should I use to describe you? Now, this is significant because all through Genesis, everybody knew God's name. His name's Yahweh. It means I am who I am. I am. I am. It's. There's no more significant name than you describe yourself as. Guess who I am? Yeah. I am. I am. Moses doesn't know God's name. He's not carrying God's name around because he doesn't even know it. And that's the whole point of Exodus. It's it says he says it over and over and over in Exodus that you know you're they're going to know Yahweh and they're going to know his name. And I'm going to have a people who carry my name around. Yes. My goal is to have a people who carry my name around in a way that honors them and me and the world. Mm. How'd that go? Yeah, <laughs> not good at all. Right. So uh, I, I am not, I am, but I am in some ways walking through this world representing I am. Yeah. I mean, that's what Genesis one and two is all about. He says, I made you in my image. You are my image bearers. You're the, you're the thing I made to most be the most likely representation of me. And then he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth and subdue it. You know, when Jesus says, uh, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth, he's, he's employing the third commandment. He's saying, look, I'm going to put my spirit in you and he's going to soften your heart and he's going to make you sensitive to the name and the ways of God. And you're actually going to be witnesses of God to the world. And that's exactly what, what a Christian who's in right relationship with the Lord does. We're not perfect, but when we're doing it right, it, people's lives are transformed. Amen. Okay, Jay, so here we are. We are in the throes of the Lenten season. In some way, that third commandment and being the representative I am has that changed you in somehow during these this weeks of Lent? Oh my goodness, John! You know, as I've been studying the commandments, I'm preaching on Exodus 20 this Sunday. I I always was a bit baffled because I thought, you know, there's no commandment about like there's no commandment about doing good work or doing there's. They're all like, don't lie, don't steal. Don't, yeah, maybe you shouldn't steal at work or lie at work or you shouldn't, you know, lust at work. But but there's no, like, gritty walking around commandment. Mm. This is it. This is don't carry around God's name in the way in which you behave, which most of our life is our work and our rest and our play. Don't, don't do this in a way that dishonors his name. And... Yeah. And now I realize, oh, I need a savior. That's really I, interesting. I need a savior. I mean, because you know, hey, I can, I can get by on the don't cuss thing. Yeah, I but, can do it. Yeah. I mean, but the other, the other way, uh, the full way, the whole tort thing, that God is in me, on me, all over me, and I have to say that I am with God and represent that twenty four seven, three sixty five. I mean. Uh, <laughs> Maybe a, maybe a good couple of hours I got in me. You can do it maybe on Sunday and, and afterwards when you all have dinner, and then you can do it 
in your prayers at night, but hey, what's it going to take for you to walk around looking just like Jesus? Well, we 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 know what it, what's going to take. It's going to take coming to God and saying, God, I I fail. I, I'm not worthy of you and this. I need a Savior and you invite Christ into your life and he washes you clean. And then he advocates for the father uh, because he paid for you. And God's constantly then going to be moving in with his spirit on your life, forming you into the person that you need to be. And, and that's the gospel right there. Yeah. You know, I just, I just shared the gospel. So Jay, I mean, you're a guy like me. I mean, you know, we have good moments and a lot of bad moments. When we are prone to act out or be the idiot or be rage-filled or whatever, knowing that, is there a little sort of like, you know, speed bump that we can go over? What is, what's your experience when you know you find yourself on the precipice of doing, you know, being the fool and not in a good way here? What, what's yeah. the slowdown yeah. there? Well, I'll tell you, the commandments are amazing speed bumps that they they used to condemn me, and now they are my path to freedom. Because <laughs> God didn't give the commandments for me to be restricted. He gave me the commandments for me to know the path that would bring flourishing to my life. So when I follow the commandments, I put myself, I put him first, other second, and myself last. And the non-saved Jay would never have done that. It didn't make sense. You know, it's Put, put yourself first. You only have a certain number of years. You got to get what you can get. Right. And the fade J is much different. Now, it doesn't mean I'm 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 able to do it perfectly. No. Well, I never. Before I was saved, I couldn't do anything but sin. And when I got saved, I had the choice to begin to not sin. And eventually, I will not be able to sin. That's the hope I have. The work in me is that He's working it out in me, a regular guy. You know, who really shouldn't be here? I should be working at the Sinopa station down the street because I've failed so many times. But the goal is, at some point, unable to sin. Yeah, the the goal at some point is I'm able to to refrain from sin. And as, as I move closer into the Word and as I move closer to the Lord and as I understand the goodness of the commandments and His goodness to me through Jesus year in and year out, I, I am I am more tempered. I am less of a hothead. I am less likely to flip the bird or go nuts on the road right, or right, right. fly off at the handle or do all the things that I, you know, do in my natural self. Right. Right. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> I get it, Jay. I mean, that's what it is to be alive. I'm right there with you, my yeah, friend. Yeah. yeah I can heck? pretend, but that wouldn't be good. That'd be lying. <laughs> right. I told you, I had a friend of mine who had a fish on uh, on his car, and he was, you know, out there being the driver of stupidity, and he just, instead of changing his ways, he took the fish off. You know, John, that is an incredible example of not carrying the name of God in vain. Because exactly. if you had it, in fact, I did an Ash Wednesday service and I wore my cross and I forgot to take it off. And when I got, when I was driving home, I took the cross and I put it on the rearview mirror and I said, oh, no, no, not a good idea. I'm not ready for it yet. Even though I've been a Christian for 40 years, I'm, not I'm still ready. not ready to have it. I'm not ready for that. I better put that down. God help us, Jay. God help us. Jay Slocum's with us. He's the rector at St. Thomas and Thomas Anglican Church in Gibsonia. Jay, uh, you referenced your Lenten series. Talk to us about uh, what you're doing in St. Thomas. 
Yeah, you know, uh, we're doing a series on Sunday of the five promises of the Old Testament, uh, moving through the amazing commitment God has to us despite our our, our tendency to fail him. Mm-hmm. And uh, we meet on Sundays at 8 and 10, 15. We have an adult education at 9, uh, 15. And it's a great growing church that loves Jesus and loves to communicate the gospel to people that need to hear it. Amen. Jay, thanks. Always good to have you with us. Yeah. Thanks, John. Jay Slocum, St. Thomas Anglican Church in Gibsonia. He said, the Ten Commandments, uh, they used to condemn me, and now they free me. If you've been listening here to the today's show uh, for any amount of time, you see I'm, I'm flying solo today. Kath is off. She... Um, she has found herself in um, a, an unfortunate situation where she has a brutal bad back. Like, like she's saying, she's in excruciating pain. And of course, anyone who's had a bad back, you can sympathize with this immediately. You just recognize, go, I've been there, I've done this. And and for a lot of back problems, there's no like, oh, here, take this, and you know, and you're good to go. This is a process that. Some people, it's a lifelong process. Other, you know, it flares up and it takes days if you're fortunate or weeks or months. Um, it's just what it is. When I was 22, I fell considerable distance and I crushed. I mean, I, I just blew my ankle out of the water. Um, I mean, it was just, it was literally, my, my right ankle is like fragments of bones that have been surgically put together several times. And when that first happened, um, uh, you know, the first sort of like surgery on my ankle, I had 13 screws and two steel plates in my right ankle. That was brutal. It took me nine months. And they were like, the doctor said to me whenever I was, you know, I was 22. And he was like, look, I see, you know, you're, you know, you're young, but here's the deal. Uh, if you if you are tempted to walk on this thing, you will end up for the rest of your life with a bag of blood and bones. And I was like, okay, <laughs> point well made. I get it, my friend. Thanks for that heads up. So I wore like this like steel cage around my right ankle for nine months. It went on forever. But you know what? Like all things that you suffer through, it changed me for the better forever. I the appreciation I had for many things. Like, I, mean, I, was in, I was in college. And, I, you know, you hang out in college and your roommates, whose time is it to go to the store, that kind of thing? I used to think, man, I would go to the store in a heartbeat if I could, you know. But I, I, even though I was on those crutches, I was kind of like Mongo. Of course, you, you know, you're 22, and I was a beast. My upper body was kind of like Arnold. My bottom body was kind of like Flappy in the Wind. I mean, there was just a delineation between upper body strength because you're on those crutches 24-7, 360. I mean, I was on those for nine months. So it was nothing for me to to move on those crutches. But it comes with a lot of baggage. So then after those crutches came off and I was out walking once again, what happened was uh, your hips changed because my gait changed. I was no longer walking as I was, you know, God designed. I was, you know, using metal. And so everything changed. So my hips were at a really weird angle. And because of that, sometimes my back would go out in like, 
like crushingly go out. I remember one time, especially I was living in New York city, still, you know, in my, I was probably 24, 25, my back went out. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a simple, you sneeze and it goes out. That's how bad it was. And these friends took me to a, to the hospital. You got to go and, you know, so they took me to the emergency room. And, of course, they go, we, we, here's some muscle relaxers. And then they released me. And I remember standing outside of the hospital. And I was, like, doubled over. I mean, I'm like, literally, my head was kind of, like, at my knee level. That's how bad I was. And I just wanted to get home. There's no way you can get home like that. I can't get on the subway. So <laughs> I found, by the grace of God, an old mop handle in the gutter, literally. And I thought, oh, and I, I stood there, bent over, holding a mop handle, trying to catch a cabbie's eye by waving the mop handle gently back and forth. And when you know it, after a little bit of time, some cabbie pulled up and he was like, <laughs> oh, you're in a bad shape. He took me home, which was great. But from that, from that simple sneeze to the visit to the ER to holding the mop handle, I was literally out of commission. I mean, truly, I, I could not do anything for weeks on end. That's how bad it was. So anybody has, and, and, and of course, this passed eventually, um, and had another surgery and went on and on, but really wasn't until my 40s till things started to stabilize. So, Kath with this with this bad back, man, I, I wear that like I know that very well. Psychologically, what happens, at least for me, is that whenever that would happen, and then you knew like the road ahead was uncertain, like this, I would have like this what I would call a brown haze of depression come over me, a brown haze, because you knew you were trapped, and then you knew that there was a price to pay of indeterminate amount of time whether it was weeks or months until the backs, you know, came out of its seizure and started to lighten itself. And, you know, the, everything kind of came back into alignment once again. But I'd go into a depression. I mean, a hard, hard depression. All that to say, I'm thinking about my good friend and yours. If you know Kath and you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, she is suffering through something here. And... um I mean, it might be tomorrow that she shows up, which I doubt, or it might be a week. I'm not even sure. I'm just saying, you know, something happened to her, and she is funky, with a capital F, funky. She's messed up. So for all of you, all of us, those people who are suffering through, and of course, a back, I'm not, I mean, <laughs> the maladies that we go through as humans, right? I mean, you look at children's hospital. I'm not equating a bad back with the kids in children's hospital or people who have long-term cancer or whatever it is, right? I'm not equating that. I'm just saying that's a real common thing that I think a lot of us can go, yep, I know it. I feel it. That's part of me. But for anyone who's suffering through long-term disability or illness or pain, Heaven help us. Heaven help all those people. And they need our prayers. Because when you think about your physicality, right, as a young person, but what a gift. And you don't even think about it. I didn't think about it. Boom. This is who I'm made. Strong, muscular, easy, can move at, at, at will. And, of course, age comes upon you and you go, hmm, I'm, 
Oh, that hurts. <laughs> Ow. It wasn't, I mean, our bodies are built to break down. That's just what creation is. There is a renewal in everything that God makes, right? A birth, a flourishing, and then a failure, and then an end. That is the cycle. And so, in my instance, whether you're 22 or whether you're in your 60s or and beyond, that all of us, if we're fortunate, I think that's the big thing. If you're fortunate, you will suffer into pain of old age. Because there are many, many people, and of course, we know that, right? There are people in our lives and our families who, for any number of reasons, were not afforded the joy of old age and the the pain that comes accompanying to that. Children, spouses, parents, gone far, far too soon. And so they are not able to have the joy, the beauty of what it is to be alive and the the rancor, the the ugliness of the indignation of our earthly created bodies, those little sacks of blood and bones that we are given to hold for an indeterminate amount of time. Grateful for that, but knowing how fragile it all is as well. It's what it is to be alive. So thank you, God. Thank you for this moment and this beauty and that pain as a reminder of you, Lord, on the cross and what you took for us voluntarily. And you took those nails and the scourging of the crown of thorns and the humiliation, and the whippings and the beatings and all those things to surrender the sins of the world that are yours and mine. And you gladly took those when you didn't have to. You didn't have to feel pain. Thank you, Lord, for all that, that we may live to see this day, this moment, this time in our lives, to experience once again your great kindness and beauty and joy of your earthly creation, and perhaps later than sooner, to join you one day in heaven. great respect for anyone who engages in an education in a seminary Mm -hmm. to dive deep into God's word over years of study. That is a very powerful thing. Oftentimes, of course, when you think someone's involved in seminary, the end result is that they'll be a pastor. Our next guest says that was not her goal whatsoever. She had no career goal in mind as she went to seminary. Leanna Davis is with us. She has described herself as a student of the Word with a B.A. in Ministry to Women from Moody Bible Institute. She wrote a piece that we saw at the Gospel Coalition, Why Seminary is Worth It for Women. Leanna, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be with you today. Leanna, we have a vast uh, cross-section of people in our listening audience who have different views on women in ministry. I'm sure that is no mm. surprise to you. Um, and But what we thought was interesting about your article is you're not arguing for uh, the place that women should play in the church or the kind of roles that they should have in the church. Instead, you're just saying that learning and going to seminary is good for all women? 
Exactly. Um, you know, not every woman is going to have the time or the desire, the interest to go to seminary and to be able to focus um, their their money and their their time on learning in the way that I have. But I think that for the woman who is interested, who wants to learn more, I think it's well worth the time and investment to go to seminary. Even if you're not thinking about becoming a pastor or having a role in a church? Exactly. I think that um, when you are ministering to your family, when you are ministering to other women, when you are just in conversations, knowing the history of the church, the doctrines of the church, it just enriches your mind. It enriches your conversations. Um, You can have, you know, such a good time with other people when you know more and more about what to talk about, about Mm. um, theology and doctrine. I love the idea of you digging deep into this journey, Leanna. How long did it take you to go through seminary? I believe I started in 2014. So it's just, it's taken me some time as we have had um, the resources and the ability to go through classes. That's what I've done when we didn't. You know, I didn't go through classes. I've had full-time work, part-time work, um, and no work. So just all over the board. Yeah. In terms of the seasons of life, you know, I've had young kids. Now I have a daughter in school. Um, and so just throughout my life, you know, being able to devote the time to seminary has been a blessing. Excellent. So years of commitment and study. So in the piece in the Gospel Coalition, you, you wrote about several of the reasons you're glad that you went. Talk to us about the reason of learning to value church history. Yeah. So as I learned and came um, in encountering more of church history. It really helped me because it made me see that I am not an expert. I am not um, just for going to seminary, for going to Bible college. That does not make me an expert or um, someone who has authority. It helped me see that there is um, an authority. Certainly our highest authority is scripture. But there is an authority um, outside of me through church history that has passed on the doctrines of the church to me. So Mm. you think about the doctrine of Christ and him being fully God and fully man. Um, You think about the doctrine of the Trinity. Those had to pass through councils of the church and had to be argued. um, And so that pure doctrine could come from those times. And it it just helped me to be thankful for the people who had come before me. Yeah, and, and I'm sure yeah. it gives you a different perspective when you recite the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. You think, "Wow, now that I know what it went, what went, what went into you know arriving at that, it means something different." Yes, exactly. I agree. And so, in seminary, of course, I mean, I'm sure most of the deep study, a lot of the deep study, it made you grow in the knowledge of God. And I mean, that's a wonderful thing. So, years and years and years of study. Now your knowledge of God is, is I'm sure, a lot deeper. Yeah, and I think um, even just the way that I pray and I interact with God is different. Um, I I love a teaching by one of my professors, Dr. Allison. He has a book on um, the Holy Spirit, and we focus a great deal on the Holy Spirit in class. And, you know, maybe before I had the... You know, just a general knowledge of the Holy Spirit, but just seeing how there was an, a fresh, unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that um, made me see how integral 
the Holy Spirit is to our daily lives, to our prayer, to our the way we do church, and how we lean on God for all, all of our guidance um, and direction. So interesting. So when I pray, I, I often, I just ignore the Holy Spirit. I'm sure much to my peril. You're saying you're focusing on the Holy Spirit and praying to the Holy Spirit. I am praying. The way that I view prayer is I pray to the Father through the mediatorial work of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And so he is guiding my reflections, um, my thoughts, my desires, um, and my actions, and all of that, certainly, as I pray. Hmm. So I think there's such a, I mean, I just want to give you credit for deciding that you wanted to learn more things, because it seems like yeah. today, you know, people stream all the time, and, you know, people catch up on, you know, the latest movie, but people who are out of school rarely decide that they want to immerse themselves in something rigorous like that, and you decided you did. Yeah, I think that there's so many opportunities for people to tune into the theological world, even if you don't choose to go to seminary. Um, there's so many podcasts now, um, so many books that you can read. And I think that that is just being intentional about setting time aside to learn um, and to grow. Um, you know, even a, a place like the Gospel Coalition or different places publications that you don't have to go to seminary to really tune into the theological conversations of the day. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure, you know, the, the recipients uh, of that education, your children, your husband, your close friends, uh, that had to change your relationship with them as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so grateful to have um, a spouse who sub has supported um, my seminary journey and um, I think that my daughter has benefited from it. Um, she has asked questions about who God is yeah. and how we relate with him and um, how we can know, um, you know, know him from the Bible and how to read the Bible and lots of questions. And um, it's such a blessing to be able to <clears throat> interact with her with the, the context that I've gained. Well, I think it's really terrific. So kudos to you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, we've been talking to Leanna Davis. She's a student of the Word. She's got a BA in Ministry to Women from Moody Bible Institute. I looked at one of my slush emails uh, today. You have this? You have like I got a work email, a good email, and then I've got like a slush or two email fund, right? You know, you go on, log on, and you apply. You know, um, oh, I'm going to get this, and you know, using this email anyway. At my slush email, I got an email today from good, shopgoodwill.com. This is not a commercial. Shopgoodwill.com, and I was like, oh, I've been on that site for a while. So. Uh, that's super cool. I love it. It's, and so I said to Lex during a break, hey, shopgoodwill.com. And Lex, you like lit up. Yeah, because my old boss down in Texas um, loved that website so much, and he got me roped into it. It's easy, too. It's so easy because it's basically a bidding website, and we would be in show and my boss would have a timer set up, and he would go, oh, no, my bids, Lexi. And he would... He would Make you go bid. He would, I would do his bidding, literally. <laughs> okay, so if you don't... Okay, so Goodwill. Everybody knows what Goodwill is, right? So then Goodwill finally got hip a few years ago, and they sort of consolidated in a national perspective from all these different Goodwill outlets all around the country. 
and they made it online. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like eBay, but it's a little cheaper. It's a little weirder. Yes. It's a little different. I mean, because the stuff that comes across there, you go, who were, who was going to buy this? You know, it's like someone's ashtray from 1962 <laughs> that still has like a cigarette butt in it or something <laughs> like that. And you go, what is that all about? Yeah, I would look for, um, basically I was looking for sports jerseys a lot. Okay. But um, when I would scroll through, like my boss would scroll through on his and like we would just look at the random stuff. He really liked Winnie the Pooh. Like that was his childhood favorite uh, okay, thing. Okay, sure. And so, a ton of Winnie the Pooh stuff. Yeah. And so every time he'd be like, oh, look how cool that jacket is. He's like, should I bid on it? <laughs> it's a size one. Yeah. He's, I was like, I don't think that's going to fit you, man. And he's I know. like, I want it, though. And you can, you know, just like eBay, you can go in there and just type in, like, random things. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, stuff pops up. Now, I, I would say it's cheaper than, I think, eBay. I think it's yeah, fair I to would say. say so. However, you got to pay shipping costs. Yes. Yes, you do. So there's that. But but at, try it some. If you have never done shopgoodwill.com, again, this is not a commercial. It's I just not. find it as an oddity and something fun to do. Yeah, it is 100%. My- not me just continuing to talk about my boss, but he's the reason why I know about it. Mm. Um, he would buy a lot of old computers on it because he loved fixing up tech. He was a, like a super techie dude. Yeah. Uh, one thing he would love to do is this is um, why Internet and computer safety is so important, friends, uh, here in Pittsburgh, because um, there are scripts that will let people get deleted stuff off of your hardware. So yeah. destroy your hardware if you're throwing away a computer, just as an FYI. But um, he would just try to find like all the weird stuff on it, not because he was doing anything nefarious, but just for the sake of like knowing yeah just to Mm -hmm. look found a lot of weird stuff oh my gosh i guess we live in the age of there is no there are no secrets nope right right yeah so it's true i mean hopefully your personal computer wouldn't find its way to shopgoodwill.com i hope not yeah but all the other stuff like grandma's afghan from 1968 or whatever there's all kind of cool things so you know in your perusal it's a good place to go anyway all right thanks for being with us have yourself a great night as always Say your prayers, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.